We have seen how in the Bible over and over there are certain themes God repeats again and again because He wants us to get it. And He wants us to understand. And uh, if you haven't been with us here at the bridge, we've been studying through the Bible for the last seven and a half years, starting in Genesis, and we have now reached Proverbs. And so this last week, I just started looking through, actually a couple weeks ago, Proverbs 10 and 11, and and praying about knowing that today was coming, Resurrection Sunday, people typically want to come and hear about the resurrection of Jesus, and you're going to hear it. But uh, just wondering, you know, Lord, is there something in Proverbs 10? Is there something where we already are at that speaks of resurrection, that, that deals with this and handles this, this concept? And there is. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 2. I'm going to throw several different verses at you here from Proverbs 10 and 11 just to look at and consider. We'll come back on Wednesday night and we'll study down this whole thing verse by verse. But but for now, check these out. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 2. Ill-gotten gains do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. Verse 25. When the whirlwind passes, the wicked is no more, but the righteous has an everlasting foundation. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 4. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Skip on down to verse 28 of Proverbs chapter 11. And we're told, He who trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like the green leaf. And down in verse 30, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. Father, this this precious truth in Your Word It unveils before us. It opens our eyes. And Lord, I think will show us some things this morning perhaps we hadn't considered of the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. And I pray, Father, as as always, we ask, Holy Spirit, that You would implant Your Word in our hearts, that it would grow, that it would bear fruit, that, Lord, we would be doers of the Word because of what we hear, that Your Word would not come back to You empty, but, Father, would change us, us. And even as we are changed, We will be useful by You in this world to bring the Gospel to people around us. Father, speak truth to us now and teach us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Rod sent me a a series of Farside-type cartoons by email. One of them I just I had to share with you. If you can get this image, it's a picture of the of the tomb that that first morning, that resurrection day, and the the stone is rolled back, and you can see in the corner of the cartoon, you just see the the heel of Jesus as he's walking off, and two Roman guards kind of around on the side of the tomb, and they're looking at each other, saying, "Did you say good morning? I didn't say good morning. Did you say good morning?" <laughs> and I think about that moment and what it must have been like for the guards. The Bible tells us the guards passed out. They were terrified, frightened out of their wits, and then went back and tried to make up a story about somehow that uh, you know the apostles came and they overtook the entire Roman guard and, and got Jesus' body out of the tomb and all that. But how it must have happened, just a stunning moment as the stone cracks and it's rolled back and out comes Jesus and, and to be in there in that moment, even as a believer, I imagine it would have been just petrifying to experience that resurrection moment. But it begs this question, and we've looked at this in years past, but I'll throw it out to you again. Who raised Jesus Christ from the dead? By what power was it accomplished? Was it God the Father? Was it the Holy Spirit? Or was it Jesus Himself? And the answer is yes on all counts. The Father raised Jesus. The Son raised Himself. And the Holy Spirit was involved in the resurrection. Acts chapter 2, verse 23. Peter said, This man... 
delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. So God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. But Jesus said He was going to do it Himself. John 2.19, and the verse isn't up here, so you might note that. John 2.19, Jesus said, Destroy this temple, speaking of His body, and I will raise it up. I will raise it up. Jesus said, I'm going to do it by My power. And thirdly, we see the Holy Spirit was involved. Romans 8.11 tells us, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all involved in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But there was one other facet. There was another factor absolutely critical for resurrection. In fact, I would go so far as to say there was a factor in the resurrection of Jesus without which the resurrection could not have happened. What are we talking about? Listen again to what Peter said. He said this about the resurrection of Jesus. Acts 2.24 God raised Him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for Him to be held in its power. It was impossible for Him to be held in its power. Death could not hold Him. It was impossible for Jesus to stay dead. You can't keep a good man down. And in Jesus' case, that's a reality. Death simply could not hold Him. Why? Well, because He's God. No, it's something else. It's more than that. Death could not hold Him because, listen again to the words of Solomon, righteousness delivers from death. Righteousness delivers from death. Solomon says that several times in these passages. It is righteousness. Listen, there's an essential connection here between resurrection and righteousness, and you cannot have the one without the other. Well, wait a minute. Rick, I've heard stories about, what about that guy Lazarus? I mean, didn't he raise from the, didn't Jesus raise him from the dead? Was, was Lazarus as righteous as Jesus? No, no, he wasn't. What about the synagogue leader's daughter? She was raised from the dead by Jesus. Was she righteous? Probably not. What about the widow's son? In one of my favorite stories, there's a funeral procession coming out of the town of Nain and Jesus shows up and calls the funeral off as He touches the coffin and raises this boy back to to be with his mother again. Incredible story. Was Was He righteous? No, but... Lazarus and the synagogue leader's daughter and and the widow's son and anyone else who was raised from the dead with the exception of Jesus Christ all died again. Two funerals. Bummer. (laughs) I mean, think about that. Hey, you're raised to life, but you're going to die again. (sighs) (laughs) These people were not righteous in the way Jesus was righteous. Jesus raised to life. Paul calls him the first fruits of those who are asleep. Never to die again. Why? Because he's righteous. Because he's righteous. And righteousness delivers from death. There's an essential connection there, and we've got to chew on this and understand this. We'll understand it more as we go this morning. But I'm going to let you think about that for a few minutes. And in the meantime, let's listen to the story. Turn in your Bible to John 21. John chapter 21 is by far my favorite gospel account of the resurrection of Jesus. It's the most personal, it's to my mind the most powerful, and it's the most like us. I mean, this involves some people who handle things, I think, exactly like many of us would handle things. 
And so let's listen to the story again. John chapter 20 and verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb, while it was still dark, and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. Now, something to understand in the Bible, the four Gospels are four stories told about Jesus from four different perspectives. You get four guys remembering, four people who talk to others to put together the story. And these stories don't contradict, but sometimes they just give you one angle of the story. In John's case, he talks about Mary. Mary Magdalene going to the tomb. But in Mark's case, he mentions that she wasn't alone. With Mary was also another Mary, the mother of James, and a woman named Salome who was actually Jesus' mother's sister and James and John's mother, which makes the apostles James and John Jesus' cousins. Y'all got that? Good. But these three women were together. And they went to the tomb. And Mark tells us they were worried that morning. They were stressing out. And it had nothing to do with the fact that they were going to have to come up against Roman guards. How are we going to take these guys on? I don't know. You kick him and I'll hit him. They weren't worried about that. They weren't stressed out about the possibility of seeing the dead body of Jesus whom they loved. That that wasn't what had them worried. Mark tells us in Mark 16, verse 3, they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us at the entrance of the tomb? How are we going to get by that obstacle? How are we going to get to where Jesus' body is when that huge tomb was there, and the tombstone was there, and we've been told the stone has been estimated to weigh upwards of two and a half tons. No wonder they were worried. No wonder they were concerned. No wonder we are so often. And perhaps that's like you. But when was the last time you felt like you were facing some obstacle in your life, and you're looking at that thing saying, there is no way that I can get around that? There's no way I'm going to be able to get over that to where Jesus is. How am I supposed to get by this huge obstacle? Maybe you're facing something like that right now. I would guess in this fellowship this morning that probably over half, at least, are facing something in your life and you're going, how am I going to get by this? How am I going to roll this back? You know what the great thing is? We're told that while it was still dark, Mary saw the tomb, that the stone was already taken away from the tomb. Mary gets there... And Jesus had taken care of it, which is like life. How often, when we get to somewhere that we didn't think we could handle, before we even arrived, it's already taken care of. Jesus has already handled the problem. A few weeks back, I uh, became a little concerned because we had some black shadowy marks up on, on the, where the studs are in our walls. And uh, my in-laws came and said, we've got a mold problem. So I start, you know, Googling mold and discovering that that can cost $3,000 minimum per wall to get fixed and cleaned out and all this stuff. And I'm like, oh, you know, the house is five years old and now we've got this mold issue and it's killing us and I'm going to have to sue Niccolo Bruno and what am I going to do? He's our builder. And I worried about it. I really worried about it because I'm thinking, I can't afford this. I can't deal with this. This is a major problem. And then uh, having coffee with uh, Jeff Friday morning, he said, well, did you try, like, wiping it off? Because, <laughs> you know, mold's not going to just wipe off. It's, it's probably just like candle soot or something. Wiped right off. You know? I worried about that for two weeks. And it was already a done deal. It was taken care of. No big deal. You know, I mean, we got some cleaning to do, but it's just candle soot. 
And I worried about that. See, see, it's, it's all of us. We all worry about really dumb things sometimes. And Jesus, and I'm, you know, that's a silly example, but Jesus has already taken care of what you were worried about this morning. You think he's surprised? I think perhaps that your big obstacle, God was overworking, you know, perhaps in Malaysia and, and, and missed that one. Oh, somebody quick, help them out because that's too big for any of us. No, he knows. He saw it coming long before you did. And that's why Jesus said this. Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will take care of itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And isn't that the truth? Do I really want to take on tomorrow's trouble today? Just deal with today, man. Walk today out. God's got tomorrow covered. We know, Romans 8.28 tells us, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, who are called according to His purpose. Do you love Him? Do you? Are you called according to His purpose? If that's the case in your life, and by the way, let that be priority number one, that you are called for His purpose, gang, He'll take care of the rest. He has no problem rolling back a two and a half ton stone. He made the stone. But Mary, now upon seeing the stone removed, she didn't immediately shout, Hallelujah! Praise the Lord! My problem solved! The stone is rolled away! No, she ran and came to Simon Peter, verse 2, and the other disciple whom Jesus loved, John, and said to them, They've taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've laid Him. And you see what she's doing? She's going right from one problem to the next. Before she's even said, praise the Lord for solving this issue, she's on to the next one. If God can roll away the stone, trust me, He can locate Jesus for you. It's not going to be a problem. I know none of us respond to life's troubles like that. But He rolls away the issues, the stones, the problems of our lives... And it's our job simply to say thank you. Praise the Lord, not to jump on to the next problem as it arises and we're stressed out again. Jesus put it this way. On the night He was betrayed, just a couple of days earlier, three days, He said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives to you, do I give to you. This is not the world's peace. You know, peace dude. Peace. Yeah, that makes my day so much better. Thanks for that right there. Right back at you, Slick. Wow, all my stress is gone. (laughs) I don't give you that kind of peace. Jesus, I give you my peace. My peace. What's that based on? Full knowledge of everything that's coming and everything that's going to happen and the fact that He loves you. His peace. Do not let your heart be troubled. Don't let it be fearful, Jesus says. On the night of His betrayal. As he's facing the obstacle of the cross, Jesus says, I give you my peace. I want you to be as stress-free as I am. He said, these things I have spoken to you, John 16.33, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. I get it. But take courage. I've overcome the world. Praise God. He rolled back a two and a half ton stone. He rolled life back into his own lifeless dead body. And if He can do that, I think He can handle the pebbles of the problems of our lives. So, Mary runs to tell Peter and John and figure out what's going on. Verse 3 says, Peter and the other disciple went forth. And they were going to the tomb. The two were running together. And the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. John wanted to make sure you all knew that. He outran Peter. I love that verse. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but John, he did not go in. 
So Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb. I think barreled would have been a better word there. You know, he just blows right by John. John, good Jewish John, is standing there knowing if I go in here, I'm defiled, and I'm so I'm just going to look. And Peter goes, get out of the way, man! And he goes... <laughs> and he saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the faith cloth, face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but, he, but it was rolled up in a place by itself. And so the other disciple who had first came to the tomb also entered, he saw, and believed. We've talked about this. This is a few years ago, but I want to remind you of what they saw that morning when they looked into the tomb. If we were reading this in Greek, it'd be easy. We'd go, wow, that's really cool. But since it's translated to English, we just see the word saw three different times there. It's three different words. The first one is John stooped and saw the linen wrappings. He doesn't go in, he just looks. The word saw is blepo in the Greek, and it means just to look at something. You know, you look around this morning, I I saw some friends this morning. Yeah, I was looking, I saw you. Not a big deal, he just kind of looked in. And he saw, there's a reality there, the linen wrappings, but there's there's no body. Then Peter comes barreling past him. Verse 6, it says, Peter went in and also saw the linen wrappings. But that word is the word thereo, where we get our word theory. It means to consider. It means to take it all in and to begin to theorize what's going on, what's happening here, to carefully study. Peter, picture him, he's there in the tomb and he's looking around. The face cloth is rolled up there. I don't know what that means. Linen wrappings, no body anywhere. You know, he's looking in the corners. Something's, Something's happened here. He's thinking it through. He's processing it. He's carefully studying it. Now, some of you, I'm sure, have heard the teaching of the linen napkin. Perhaps you've seen it floating around on the web. This amazing story, and I've actually preached this. That in Middle Eastern custom, to take a linen napkin, if you're eating dinner and and you want to excuse yourself from the table, if you fold up the napkin nicely and put it by your plate, it means you're just going to be gone for a little bit, but you're coming right back. And so some say, that's what Jesus was doing, saying, hey, I'm going to fold the napkin here because I'm not done eating, so I'll be back in a few. Others think, no, no, it's it's the opposite, that a folded linen napkin at the end of a meal, nicely folded and set down, is a way of saying, I was offended at this dinner party, and I am not coming back to this place again. And so there are those who say, well, that's what Jesus was saying. I'm not coming back to this eating establishment, this tomb, anymore. I'm done. So which one is it? Which story is it? Hey, it makes great stuff for the internet and it preaches well. But I think it's something far more simple than that. I really do. I'm not sure that Jesus was leaving a secret code. Perhaps. Don't want to blow anybody's happy Easter story out of the water. But I think it was something far more simple. Simply that there was an intentional orderliness to the inside of the tomb. They look in there and you know what? If grave robbers had stolen the body, things would would have been in disarray. If the Roman guard had moved the body, well, then they would have just taken everything out and left it. But it was as though someone woke up, got up, made the bed, and left. And the guys looked at that and were told there in uh, John chapter 20, verse 8, the other disciple, John, who had first come to the tomb, then also entered, he saw and he believed. He didn't just look, blepo. He didn't just theorize, thereo. No, he saw, ada is the word in the Greek. It means, it means he comprehended it. He got it. He saw it and believed. We get that word, the word idea. He, had, he got the right idea. A light bulb went off. When John walked into the tomb and he went, he's alive. He's alive. 
I know that I know that I know that He's alive. Well, so John put it all together right in that moment? No, he didn't. Look at the next verse. For as yet they did not understand the Scripture that He must rise again from the dead. John wasn't putting it together with Hebrew Scripture and the teaching of Jesus and and all the prophecies. He, He wasn't putting that together yet. It's just that he looked and he saw and he said, Jesus is alive. I don't know exactly how I can explain it. But I know He is alive. And I love that about John. He couldn't explain it, but he believed it. You know, that's where faith starts. If you're not a Christian this morning, listen, it doesn't start because you have memorized enough Scripture that it finally sinks in. You go, oh, okay, I got it. it, it it's not that you, you get involved and sign up at a church and you do just enough ministry and then, then you start to understand. Faith is this simple. It's looking at Jesus and for the first time in your life going, I believe. I mean, I, I, I really believe. Yeah, I believe that He rose from the dead. Well, why do you believe that? I don't know. <laughs> But I do. There's something in my heart of hearts that tells me it's true. I know it's true. And the great news is, as someone who has walked in belief for a long time, the good news is the truth bears that out. You start with just that simple faith, but the truth catches up and you start to go, oh, okay, now I see why I believe. But I believe is where it begins. And Jesus may even have been partially referring to John that same evening, that Sunday evening, when He said in John 20, 29, Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. John just went, the only possible explanation, Jesus is alive. Verse 10 going on. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she went, or as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. We're back to the same word that Peter was using, thoreto. She considered. She looks into the tomb. This is remarkable to me. She looks into the tomb and she's carefully considering, studying what's going on there. Well, what's going on? An angel sitting here and an angel sitting there, right where the body of Jesus had been. Two angels. One sitting at the head, one sitting at the feet. And she began to think. And I wonder, we don't have this in Scripture, but I wonder if Mary saw the picture that I believe was intended. What picture? That the angels were sitting facing each other where Jesus' body had once been, just like the angels on top of the mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant. Two angels facing each other. Right there. God said, I will meet you to the Israelites. I'll meet you there. Above the mercy seat where the blood is sprinkled. They're at the mercy seat. And now here Mary is looking at the mercy seat. What is the mercy seat of Jesus? The empty tomb. What provides mercy? What offers us hope and salvation? Right there in front of her very eyes. Did she see it? I don't know. Hindsight's twenty twenty. They probably realized this later on. But there it was. And if you want to think through this more, Exodus 25, verses 10 through 22. Read that. Come back and look at verse 12 of John 20 and see if you're not seeing exactly what John is describing the mercy seat of Jesus. Well, they said to her, verse 13, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, Because they've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid Him. And this, this is interesting to me, because what would you do if you walked into a tomb and two angels were sitting there? 
Would you have a conversation with them? I would freak out. Ah! I'd be running. Peter, John, wait up. I'd outrun both of them. You know? And yet Mary's just like, I'm just wondering where the Lord... Have you seen the Lord lately? Because I'm just... I need to find Him. She's talking to angels. In every other case that I see in Scripture, when an angel shows up, people hit the deck. People are scared to death. The angels have to say, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. In this case, the angels say, why are you weeping? Well, because they've taken away my Lord. And I do not know where they've laid Him. Mary, you're talking to angels. She's not even shivering. Why? Because at that moment, all she could see was Jesus. All she cared about was getting to where He was. She was so razor-focused on seeing Jesus, on finding Jesus, that talking to angels really didn't have a great impact on her right then. And I, I want my faith to be like that. I want to be so focused on Jesus that nothing freaks me out, that nothing scares me, that nothing upsets me, that nothing spins me around, that I just see Jesus. I want to love Him so much and be so determined to see Him that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate me from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus my Lord. That woman was focused that day. And she's weeping and she's upset and the angels say, what are you looking for? I'm looking for Jesus. And Jesus shows up. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Okay, why? More theories. You know, people say, well, because he was in disguise. You know, what, did he have like one of those little noses with the mustache? What? She didn't recognize him. Well, some have said perhaps he was so beaten and brutalized at the cross that he was still unrecognizable. Okay, that's a thought. I think, again, it's more simple than that. Mary's weeping. Mary's eyes have got to be puffy and bloodshot and tear-stained and she's not looking and she's she's just caught up in, in her sorrow over having lost Jesus. She doesn't see Him. Even though Jesus was all she longed to see, in that moment she was so wrapped up in her pain, it made it difficult for her to see Him as He was. You ever there? In that place where... You're having a hard time even seeing Jesus. It's not the obstacles in front of you. It's just the pain. It's just the heartache of life. And your eyes are bleary. And you can't see. And He's right there. He's right there. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Now, I don't think He was toying with her. He might have been. I don't know. I mean, if I resurrected from the dead, I'd probably be in a pretty good mood myself. (laughs) So perhaps Jesus was kind of like, who are you looking for? (laughs) You know? I'm not going to let her see who I am. Just give her a second. No, just wait, wait, Father. Just hang on. This is great. Who are you looking for? (laughs) I don't think he's toying with her. I think Jesus is simply wanting Mary to declare who she desires. To speak out, I am looking for Jesus. That's something, again, to this whole issue of faith. You know, you come to that moment where you finally believe. You're just saying, I do. I believe it. It's got to be the case. He must have risen. I believe. And then Jesus says, okay, then I want you to say it. Don't just think it. 
Just give mental assent to it. Speak it out. Say it out loud. Paul says in Romans 10.9, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Okay, so does God have His checklist? And He's going, okay, I'm waiting for the confession. You're not saved until you give me a confession, son. I'm waiting for it. No, that was not the right phrase. I'm sorry, sinner's prayer doesn't work with me. I have a different prayer, and you're not getting it right. I'm not checking off. How silly we are. Why does God want us to speak it? Because it shores up our faith. Because when I say aloud, for example, when I say aloud to you, I love my wife, there's no questioning whether or not Rick loves his wife. I do. I just said it. And it makes that love stronger. Does Jesus know when a person believes in Him? Of course He does. So why does He want us to speak it out? Because it strengthens our faith. And in that moment, Mary needed to hear herself say, I'm looking for Jesus. Supposing Him to be the gardener, she said to Him, Sir, if you've carried Him away, tell me where you have laid Him, and I will take Him away. Oh, really, Mary? How much do you weigh? About 110? (laughs) Jesus, probably 180, 185? I don't know. Roughly? There are reasons for thinking that I won't get into this morning. So, little old 110-pound Mary is going to go find Jesus' dead body (laughs) and take it where she needs to go. What is she thinking? How is she going to do this? How is she going to carry him? Well, remember what Jesus said. Matthew 11.30 My yoke is easy. My burden's light. Let me just say something to all of you, but especially if you're not sure where you stand, if you're not a Christian, if you've never committed your life to Jesus. There are a lot of people who put it off because they're afraid the moment I become a Christian, life's going to get hard. It's heavy. All of a sudden, I'm going to have to start keeping all those rules. And I, that's a big book. Have you seen that book? And I'm supposed to do that? How? I, so people put it off. I'm going to stay in the place in my life where it's easy for a while longer. <laughs> you know, and then maybe I'll commit later. But it just sounds heavy. Christians, is your life harder or easier because of Jesus? Easier. Amen. And if anyone says hard, I'm going to pop you in the head. You're missing the point. (laughs) Does life sometimes get more difficult because you believe? Ask the Chinese house church movement. Ask those in the, what is it, the Shaowing church who this morning met to have Easter services and were arrested. Today. Is it difficult? Absolutely it's difficult to follow Jesus in China. Of course, what's interesting is the state church, the sanctioned church, has about 20 million members. The house church movement is boasting about 60 million right now. Now why would that be? It's more difficult, but His burden is light. Life is easier to face and handle. Absolutely, when you have Jesus. Absolutely. There are times where I wonder, why would you want to walk through life without Jesus? Why would you want to face all the stuff? You want to look at the stone and try and roll that thing yourself? Feel free. You know? But Jesus, Jesus says, my burden's light. He's not hard to carry. In fact, giving your life to Jesus brings you more freedom than you've ever had in your life. Trust me on that, it's true. Well, so Mary says, wherever he is, I'm going to go get him. And that's the spirit, Mary. Go get Jesus. And now in one of the most tender moments in all of Scripture, Jesus said to her, Mary... This one word doesn't say, let me explain the theological ramifications of what just happened up on the cross and perhaps you can grasp the meaning of the depth of the thing that I'm... No, he just said, Mary. 
He just spoke her name and she knew it was him. Not because he happened to speak her name. It's the way. She knew his voice. She heard his voice. Ah, it's Jesus. Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said, Stop clinging to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brother and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. What a wonderful scene. Mary, Jesus, Rabboni. And she grabs him and clings to him. He's like, All right, all right, all right, all right, all right, all right. It's like when I walk in the door after having been gone for a while and and David, my you know, my little David, his reaction is always, Daddy, you home? That's his big friend. You home? I'm home, David. You know? Typically within about two seconds, Naomi comes flying around the corner at a thousand miles an hour and just And she won't let go. I I usually have to walk through the house with her on a leg, you know, clinging to me. And it's like, okay, Naomi, I'm home. I'm here. And that's the picture game. Mary grabs on to Jesus. I don't know if she fell down and grabbed his feet, if she grabbed his robe, if she just threw her arms around him. I don't know. But Jesus said, hey, I haven't gone anywhere. What are you worried about? I am right here. And in this moment of tender affection, gang, we get a picture, I believe, of how he wants us to be. I believe Jesus would say to you and to me, stop clinging. What do you mean? I mean, we we see Jesus and we grab on and we cling to Him and He says, stop clinging to me and go. Stop holding on and go. I'm right here. I'm with you. And you're not going to lose me. Let go and get going. You go and tell others that I am risen. Rich Fellowship, this is our purpose. This is why this church is here. It is not so that once a year we can have lovely Easter services. It is not so we can watch the kids sing, cute as a button though they may be. It is not so that we can gather together and cling to Jesus and one another in our little hidey hole while the world goes to hell in a handbasket. Jesus says, stop clinging and go. Tell them. Tell them what? I'm not a trained evangelist. He's risen. Just tell them He's risen. What does that mean? I don't really know, but I know it's true. (laughs) Call my pastor. (laughs) He's risen to worship and then go with the Gospel. To praise Him and then go tell the news. Not to cling, not to huddle in self-satisfying worship. No, we are called to go. Jesus says, I'm with you always to the end of the age. And that's an important verse. It's not, I'm with you always as long as you're in the barn. I'm with you always as long as you're in an edifice that has a steeple or a little cross or a church kind of attitude about it. I'm with you always. So go. Go. There's so many people without hope. How many people this morning, I don't even know the numbers, how many people are sitting home watching TV right now? No hope. Watching the kids open the Easter eggs. No hope. How many people know that they're going to have to get up and go to work tomorrow and life is mundane and it just goes on and on and on and there's no hope? What are we going to do about that? We've got to go. We have got to tell. Yeah, but every time I bring it up with my family, they get upset. Great, upset them. I'm sorry. I don't want to offend you, but I love you. And my friends think I'm weird. Great. You're, remember what Brian said at communion? We're called to be odd. Be weird about it. 
I love Jesus. Have you ever seen him? No, but he's awesome. (laughs) And life is better because of him. Tell the good news. He is risen. Well, that's what Mary did. Verse 18. Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he had said these things to him. She came announcing, I love the word, announcing angelos in in the Greek. Angel. Mary came like an angel. You see, the angels came and they announced to Mary. He's not here, he's risen. Then Mary saw Jesus and now Mary is the angel. Now Mary is the one announcing the message, bringing the good news. Now she's the one. Mary's the first evangelist in the Bible. First evangelist. The word angelos in the Greek comes from euangelos, which is where we get our word evangelism. Someone who goes and tells good news, good teller, good message. And so here goes Mary. She goes and she tells the boy. I I love this story. And I tell you, if you're having a bad day, open up John 20 and just read the first 18 verses and your day will get better. It's just a great story. But it's more than a story. And honestly, it's not something we celebrate around here annually. It's not even something we celebrate around here weekly. It is something to be celebrated in the life of a follower of Jesus every moment you breathe. It should permeate your life. What? Resurrection. It's all about resurrection. That is the cornerstone of the Christian faith. Resurrection. But not because it's a neat, spine-tingling tale. (laughs) He walked out of the grave. Wow. Incredible. That's not why we tell the story over and over and over. The truth of the resurrection, gang, get back to this. There is no resurrection without righteousness. Go back to Proverbs. There's no resurrection without righteousness. You cannot have the former without the latter. Where there is no righteousness, there can be no resurrection to everlasting life. It can't happen. That's why Jesus couldn't be kept down. Because Jesus was wholly, completely, fully, 100% righteous in and of Himself. So death couldn't hold Him. Because death cannot keep its grasp around righteousness. Righteousness always breaks free. With this in mind, look at this. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 25. When the whirlwind passes, the wicked is no more, but the righteous has an everlasting foundation. When the whirlwind passes, the wicked is no more, but the righteous has an everlasting foundation. How long is that foundation good for? Everlasting. How long is everlasting? Forever. Forever. Everlasting. Yeah, yeah. There's no end. This is a foundation that goes on and on. Long after Rick's house is rotted to mold, this foundation (laughs) remains. It is solid. But when the whirlwind passes, the wicked is no more. Hmm. Ezekiel 18.4 says, Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son. The soul whose sins will die. 1 Corinthians 15.56 The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. If you sin, you die. That's it. No hope in yourself. Which is why funerals freak people out. We're talking Thursday night at worship team. That's why when people come to a funeral, you've got two different ways of approaching death at a funeral. If you have life in Christ and you believe in resurrection, and you know the person who died, died in Christ, it's a glorious event. Yes, it's sorrowful because you're going to miss the person, but you know where they are and you know you're going to see them again, and that's good news. Go to a funeral where nobody believes, and it is a scary place to be. 
the scariest place I would submit to you on planet Earth is a funeral where there is no faith in Jesus. Because in that place, all hope is gone. It's just over. If you sin, you die. How many people are sinless here this morning? Just show of hands. Sinless. We got uh, one who thinks he is. Okay. When the whirlwind passes, the wicked is no more. Without righteousness, there is no resurrection. Now, you can actually, it's funny that we all kind of take the downside. If you're in Jesus Christ, you should have raised your hand. You're sinless. As far as God is concerned, His righteousness is imputed to you. It is on you. You are righteous because Christ is righteous. Listen, the righteous has an everlasting foundation. Jesus is our foundation. Jesus is righteous. His righteousness was then the essential component of His resurrection. Again, Peter said it's impossible. It was impossible for Him to be held in death's power because you can't keep a righteous man down. And I read that, and you know, to step outside of faith just for a moment and say, oh, if God could only find a way to, to make us righteous like Jesus was, you know, then we too could have the hope and assurance of eternal resurrection if He just could find a way to deliver us from death to life forever. Check this out, a verse I didn't read to you earlier. Proverbs 11.21 Assuredly, the evil man will not go unpunished, but... The descendants of the righteous will be delivered. Who are the descendants of the righteous? Well, the righteous is Jesus, and the descendants are His seed. That's the word in the Hebrew, literally seed. The seed of the righteous are delivered. Well, who are Jesus' seed? Who are Jesus' children? Who belong to Him? We do. If you believe in Jesus Christ, guess what? Seed! You belong to Him. You are His children. As many as received Him, John 1.12, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of a man, but born of God. Born again, you are Christ's seed. That's awesome. That means His righteousness now is my righteousness. Romans chapter 8, verse 10, If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. And I'll tell you, that's the only way to get into heaven. You've got to be perfect. Flawless, righteous, absolutely sinless. It's the only way to come into the presence of a holy and righteous God. The only way to get to the Father then is through the Son who is already righteous, who could not be held in the chains of death, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And I've said this before, I will say again, it is not by our good deeds that we get salvation. It is not by our hard works that we become righteous people. It's not by attending a particular church. Being Catholic does not save you. Being Methodist, being Baptist, does not save you. Well, I'm a member of the bridge. Does not save you. I'm a Bridgian. (laughs) And you're not saved by following a mere man. Following the teachings of Buddha. Lovely, flowerly, overweight, will not save you. (laughs) Following Muhammad. Powerful, strong, bloodthirsty, chopping off heads, will not save you. Following a Joseph Smith. You know what? Every year, Mormons gather in... I'm not even sure where it is. Where is it? In Palmyra. 
they gathered there for this wonderful festival where the story is told. And they had their own kind of passion plays involving Joseph Smith and the whole thing. And if you read about it, it sounds like, oh, that's kind of cool. It's a marvelous, exciting, thrilling story. And it's a lie that doesn't save anybody. John says, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He Himself is the propitiation, the complete cleansing, washing of our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. This world-encompassing offer of Jesus is come to Me and you will be saved. Come to Me, trust in Me. Simple faith. I believe that Christ is risen indeed. So Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the Gospel. The Gospel. The euangeleo. The message of good news. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first, also the Greek, for in it, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. In what? In the Gospel. Because Jesus is the righteousness of God, He rose from the dead. Because Jesus is the righteousness of God, if Christ is in you, you are righteous. And you will resurrect if you should die. Jesus also said, if you happen to be alive when I come, you're not going to die at all. And that's what I'm banking on. (laughs) The message of resurrection gang is righteousness. That's the deal. It's not an old-timey religion word. It is, it is a word that we all desire, long for, need. His righteousness. Last thing, Christians. This is the light that we bring into the darkness. This is the light. His righteousness. Resurrection. Christ in you. Don't cling to Him. Go for Him. In fact, I love this. At the end of Proverbs 11, verse 30, it says, The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who is wise wins souls. He who is wise wins souls. How do you win souls? Tell them about Jesus. And keep telling them about Jesus. He is risen. Christ is risen indeed. Christians, that's your call. If you're not a Christian, you know what? You don't need anything other than what every single person who believes in Christ here originally needed, and that is His righteousness. Because I'm telling you, and I say this with all the love I can muster, if you stand before God on your own merit, you will not be saved. In the same way that if I stand before God on my own merit, I will not be saved. I could preach a million sermons. I can teach out of the Word of God, but if I stand before Him without faith in Jesus Christ, I have no salvation. It is His righteousness that makes a home for us in heaven. Without it, there's no hope. But with His righteousness, there is the hope and the promise of resurrection. Father, that's why we're here. We're here to proclaim the truth of the resurrection of Jesus because that's our hope. That's what it's all about. This life, our existence, is not just a mundanely go day to day and carve out a little piece of the world for us. God, it is to proclaim Your righteousness to the highest heavens, to glorify You in praise and worship, and to declare the truth of Jesus Christ. We are here, Lord, because You said You love us and You want to save us. May we rest secure in Your your righteousness. And Father, I pray for anybody sitting here this morning who is not a Christian, just that they would consider these things, thoreo, that they would think about them. Look at the empty tomb. Consider what we're talking about. 
And that that would move into simple faith. Accepting Jesus. God, that is the desire of my heart. And I pray it this morning through Your Spirit, by Your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.